Well, this morning, I'm thinking of a story of a time Elizabeth and I had been dating all of three months. I recall we got together in December, and I recall going up to meet her parents, wondering if I was meeting future in-laws. And then as time progressed, I could tell very quickly that my parents really liked Elizabeth, and they knew that this one I couldn't let get away. And so they had to do everything in their power to try to make this thing work. And so they said, hey, for spring break, I'm putting this together. They're here so they can correct later, I suppose. But they said, why don't we take a trip down to the Keys? We'll go scuba diving for spring break. Oh, and by the way, you can bring Elizabeth along. Well, that sounded like fun. And so I asked, and sure enough, we worked out the details. And I had envisioned something a lot like this. The sun shining. Oh, where'd it go? Oh, it disappeared. Anyway, you get the idea. It won't last long. It must be in my PowerPoint. That's what I had envisioned. It was going to be sunny. It was going to be warm. Maybe we get to take some walks on the beach, all these wonderful things, and then scuba dive. I mean, that's one of my favorite things to do. And so this was a win-win all the way around. Well, my excitement gave way to the weather forecast that instead of this, we had a lot more of this. Now, for those of you that scuba dive, strong wind is not your friend because the waves are too rough and they won't take groups out. And I have to say, I was quite bummed. I was a little put out. I was a little sad. You know, you drive all that way. You only have one spring break. Here we are and it's windy. It's raining. The conditions are not favorable, but I will never forget Elizabeth had the best attitude of the whole group, probably. She was happy. She was fun-loving. Oh, but we're all together. Isn't this fun? And, you know, it it was contagious. And I started to try and pick up a little bit and, and all that kind of thing. But I was having a real hard time. I don't know about you, but I struggle specifically with this idea of circumstances not impacting my attitude. Do you, any of you struggle with that? I like things to be a certain way. I like things to happen how they're supposed to happen. I like them on time. I like them decent and in order. And when those things don't happen like I envision, my attitude starts to wane a little bit. Maybe some here can relate. But I was so impressed. In fact, I was so over-the-top impressed with how Elizabeth was so just had a great attitude about this whole trip that I thought, wow. I mean, I took notice at that point. I thought maybe she was the one. But after this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad trip, I knew she was the one because of her attitude in the midst of some pretty poor circumstances. It's been uh, wonderful ever since. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. But this morning, I want to look As we look and continue in this series on Paul, a man of grace and grit, I'm calling this sermon here, Confident, Contagious Faith. And if you brought your Bibles, I want to open to a well-known story where Paul is confronted with some very trying circumstances, and we're going to see how he and Silas deal with these troublesome circumstances. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 16, beginning verse 16, and you will recall that he was given a vision. He went, he found some people meeting, and they had some good small group times in terms of Bible study and prayer. He found them down by the river and studied with them there. There wasn't a synagogue where he was in Philippi, but then it turns south. And so we pick up in chapter 16 of Acts, verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her 
masters much profit by fortune telling. Verse 17, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. And so picking up the next part of verse 18, and Paul says, greatly annoyed. It's also translated maybe in your translation as being grieved or very troubled turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, most powerful name in the universe, to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Praise the Lord. This is success. Verse 19, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, does profit still control much of society today? They seize Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace to the authorities. Why the marketplace? Well, the marketplace was the center, not only of social, but of business life, but also of administering justice. It all took place in the marketplace. And so they brought them to the magistrates in verse 20 and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. You see, Jews were permitted to follow their own religion, but they were forbidden to make proselytes of Roman citizens. And so they were upset. They were outraged. They were getting the crowds worked up and everybody was bothered by all of this. And then in verse 22, we read, Then the multitudes rose up together against them, Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. This isn't looking very good, is it? So the last sermon we preached on the series of Paul, we talked about when God says no. Do you remember that? But looky here, now God is not just saying no, but things are getting much worse. Remember Phrygia, the Holy Spirit forbade them. God said no. Remember Galatia, God, the Holy Spirit forbade them. He said no yet again. Messiah, again, God said no. No, no, no. And even to Bithynia, four times in a row, four doors are slammed, somewhere between three or four hundred miles traveled. Who knows how long these doors continue to close without explanation. They're asking perhaps why, but not getting good answers. But then Paul receives a vision and he's told, go to Macedonia, across the sea, to a more secular land where you have not yet been. So they don't ask questions. They go in faith. They're confident this is a message of the Lord. But now this, the whole town is in uproar. They've been beaten and it only gets worse. Verse 23, and when they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 no. Take a further distance away from home. Cross the sea. Go to this other land so that you can be arrested. The clothes taken off your back so they can beat you and rip up your back. And then as your back is torn open and bleeding and the flies are swirling, we're going to put you in the inner prison, the inner dungeon, the place where we put the most hardened criminals, not just because it's safer in there, but because it is a much more challenging experience to say the least. The floor is irregular. There's no sunlight. I know this picture shows something coming through the door. I don't think there was any light whatsoever. If you needed to use the restroom, go right ahead. Help yourself. That's why the floor was slanted. So in some way, shape or form, it would drain out eventually. 
Vermin were the only things that would clean the inner prison and they might be nibbling on the parts of flesh coming off of your back. So this is the experience. I'm in stocks and that all these pictures of them in stocks show them like, you know, with their feet up and everything is chill. But typically they were contorted in different positions to be uncomfortable. Yet you can't move because you're in stocks. And so the longer you're there, your back starts to get tight. This muscle starts to seize up. You want to adjust. Even sitting in these pews, you've adjusted I don't know how many times. It's a topic for another time. And I imagine in the midst of all this, I would find myself saying, God, was this the plan? You closed all the other doors for this inner prison experience? What would your response have been? God, where are you? Get us out of here. We don't deserve this. All of that would be true. But this is the part of this well-known story that is so amazing to me. But at midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Hey, Silas. Yeah, we were going to prayer meeting. Uh Uh-huh. But we're here. So let's just have prayer meeting here. Okay. What should we sing? And they start to sing. I'd really like to know what they sang. Was it one of the Psalms? Was it the one that Lauren read this morning? We don't know. Did they have a voice? Did Paul have a voice like Charles? To God be the glory, great things he has done? I don't know. But I imagine to all of the other inmates listening, this was a real head scratcher. I mean, we don't like our existence, but at least we got a window. At least we have mush coming under the door. At least we can change positions freely. These two guys, after being beaten, are in the inner prison and they're praying out loud. They're singing and you can tell by their singing something's going on in there. Did they change the inner prison? Is it first class accommodations? I don't think so. And this had an impact. Somehow their circumstances were not impeding their attitudes. And again, I don't know about you, but this is a challenging one for me. I mean, we ask those types of questions, don't we? How's your day going? What does that mean? Are you having a good day? It's basically asking the question, based on your circumstances, how do you feel? Well, I'm actually having a pretty good day. My boss gave me a raise and a colleague bought me lunch today. And so I'm doing pretty good. Next day, it might be totally different. I'm having a horrible day. I'm caught in traffic. And my boss had to give me this, you know, write up on something that really wasn't me. It was the other person. But anyone, ah, sorry, you had a bad day. Should we allow, should we be okay with, though, this idea that circumstances, whatever they are, that just is going to be a reflection of how my attitude will be for the day? I don't think that was the way Paul and Silas functioned, do you? Somehow their attitude was determined by something other than their circumstances. Somehow there was something deeper than the peripherals of life. Peripherals? They just got beaten with rods. Their back is torn up. But to them, it was peripherals. It was commentary. Because at the end of the day, I know who I am in Jesus Christ. I know he died to save me. There's a plan and purpose for my life. I'm on his mission. And whatever happens to me, so be it. And so I'm having a good day. And the other prisoners are listening to this. They're saying, this doesn't make any sense. Friends, to people who don't know the Lord, it doesn't make any sense. And that's what they call a powerful witness. There's something different about you. You don't get upset like everybody else. You don't backbite like everybody else. You're not down all the time. You're always cheery. You have something I don't have, but I want it. 
That's something, Bryce, that always strikes me about going overseas. Kids that have virtually nothing, happiest kid you'll ever find. I imagine if verses like this has something to do with it. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. Think about that for a minute. Lord, I'm yours. This terrible thing has happened. But I'm going to rejoice that I was counted worthy. You saw something in me that said, I can trust this individual with this challenge. They're going to praise me anyway to suffer shame for his sake. He counted me worthy. Praise the Lord. I'm having a great day. How about this one? I'll very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. We oftentimes ask different questions. How much does it pay? How long do I have to be there? What do I have to do? Don't know if that fits into my routine. I'll think about it. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Prime example, circumstances don't shape their attitudes. By God's grace, we can stay positive in the face of trials and adversity. And everyone's watching and listening, what I call a captive audience, and they're stunned. Some may have been there for a time. They know what comes out of the inner prison, and it's usually shrieks and moans cursing and swearing at all hours of the night, but never before. In all their years in this same prison, if there's someone like that, have we ever seen somebody go in and pray and praise like these two men? Maybe when their food came around, they said to the guards, we'll have what they're having. But friends, don't miss this. Our attitudes are our choice. They're not subject to what is happening around us. They're not subject to our financial situation. They're not subject to the events of the day. Your boss, your neighbors, your kids, your spouse, none of them control your attitude. Your attitude is your choice. And if I'm solely focused on my preferences, my agenda, my wants, my desires, there's a real good chance that my attitude will go up and down with the circumstances of life like a yo-yo. But if I'm focused on God's preferences, God's agenda, God's wants, God's desires, then I can be thrown into prison, but I can still sing where I am planted. Is your attitude a slave to circumstances or is it a slave to Christ? What can man do to me? My salvation is still secure. My outcome in Christ is secure because I know who has the last word. Therefore, my attitude doesn't have to change. In fact, nothing of great importance has changed. My relationship with God is intact so I can praise, I can pray, I can sing. I think of the verse, the joy of the Lord is my strength. What do we not have today to be joyous of in the Lord? Has he not done anything and everything for us. And no matter what happens to you and me later on this afternoon, that fact will not change. I know for myself, more often I need to be like Paul and Silas. What did Paul say? I'm a slave. I'm a bondservant to Jesus Christ. And so if he wants me here in this prison, rather than preaching on the corner, I'll be here preaching in the prison. It's not the end of our story. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. I think angels were sent from heaven and with a boom, everything was stirred up. And it says in verse 27, and the keeper of the prison, this is not just some minimum wage guy. This is the top guy of the entire prison. The keeper of the prison awakened from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Paul called verse 28 with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we're all here. Now, if all of them are loosed, if all of them are in prison for a good reason, let's suppose, why would they still be there? Why wouldn't they have scattered and be gone? Well, it doesn't tell us, 
why. It just says that they were. But I would suggest to you that when somebody in the face of trying circumstances is cool and calm and collected, more often than not, they'll end up being the leader. And so when Paul and Silas stay, they all stay. They're waiting and taking their cues from them. And they say, wait, don't do that. We're all right here. We're fine. I think we're also safe to assume that this jailer probably treated them roughly when he put them in the cell. He probably was the one or very likely could have been the one that invoked the lashings. I don't know. And now the tables have turned and now is the opportunity for Paul and Silas to give him what's coming. But now we see what Paul and Silas are truly made of. And I imagine too that this jailer in the humility of that moment is remembering the slave girl that was demon possessed that says these servants of the most high God are pointing out the way of salvation. They have something he doesn't have. And so the next verse, then he called for light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Let's stop and think about that. He's already been saved in some respect. Saved from what? His life had been spared. Sometimes I think we talk about salvation simply in terms of eternal life. And that's important. That's certainly a huge piece of it. But I think God wants to save us in more ways and more respects than just be able to live forever. I believe God wants to save us from this present life of sin and evil habits that cause pain in all relationships that we're connected with. What must I do to be saved? I would submit there's more than just a question about life, about self-preservation, but rather it's asking Paul and Silas, I want what you have. I've been told the rumor mill says it's about salvation. Tell me what I have to do to be saved. You're beaten, you're mistreated, you're put in the inner prison with open wounds and stench and vermin, yet you sing praises to your God. I don't have that, but I want it. Folks, there's a popular theology that says today, believe in God, you have eternal life, And what you do after that doesn't matter. I can keep on sinning because after all, I cannot overcome. I'm helpless in that area. But friends, in the whole of the gospel, or that is not the whole of the gospel, if you will, God doesn't want to just save us for eternity in terms of our life. He wants to save us from this life of sin that we're presently in today. I imagine over the many hours leading up to this moment, the Holy Spirit was convicting this jailer. He was comparing his life with that of Paul and Silas, what they had versus what he had. And he was no longer satisfied. He wanted more. What must I do to be saved from this life, this existence I find myself in? How can we say that's the gospel to say, just believe in God, he'll give you everlasting life. But until then, it's just garbage from here till then. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a changed life. The gospel is an about face. The gospel is about changing the here and now. And your circumstances may stay the same, but your attitudes change entirely. What must I do to be saved? Right here in the heart of the Christmas story, we read Matthew 1 verse 21. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people in their sins, from their sins. God wants and longs to save us from our sins, folks. Because sin infects everything we do. It infuses it with pain and heartache and guilt. And Christ came to die in our place, not just to save us from the penalty of sin, which we all deserve, but to deliver us from the power of sin in our life. I like this quotation from Review and Herald years ago. Through all ages and in every nation, those that believe that Jesus can and will save them personally from sin are the elect and chosen of God. They are his peculiar treasure. 
They obey his call and come out of the world and separate themselves from every unclean thought and unholy practice. Is that because they're trying to earn something? No, it's not to be saved. It's because they are saved. It's not the root. It's the fruit. Who doesn't want to enjoy the fruit? Now, I've admired some roots before. Sometimes a tree falls over and there's a huge bunch of roots, but I enjoy the fruit a whole lot more. If God has given us something called salvation, but he's also given us not just self-preservation, but power to overcome, don't I want to apply that to my life today? That's what we see in Paul and Silas. That's why their witness is so powerful, because they've allowed the Holy Spirit to completely change them. Not at the second coming, at the culmination of all things, but now in this life, we have seen, we've traveled with Saul of Tarsus. Now, Paul, he's not the same person. Christ wants to remove our bent on sinful habits and practices and tendency to give us power to be obedient to God and to his word and to allow the power of that word to transform us into men and women of God. Yet sadly, many of us are denying ourselves that precious experience. Folks, this is not legalism. This is not earning your salvation. This is not proving yourself to God worthy of anything. No, this is the surrender of yourself to the Holy Spirit. This is surrender to God, doing a work in you. This is surrendering to God's plans and purposes to allow him to recalibrate your attitudes and making yourself available for him to work on your heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You might say, well, how does that happen? Philippians 2, 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for good pleasure. You're not the one creating these good works. You're just making yourself available. You're subjecting yourself to his word. You're praying that the Holy Spirit will change your heart and he does the work. It's still by grace but it's for our benefit. Second Peter 1 verse 3, his divine power, whose divine power? His has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He doesn't say, give up, you can't handle it, it, you know, it's too much for you. Well, it is too much for me, but through his divine power, he's given me everything necessary to overcome. This one's from Great Controversy 489. Through defects in the character, Satan works to gain control of the whole mind. He's doing that more effectively today than maybe he ever has in my lifetime. Through little pocket devices. Don't get me started on that. And he knows that if these defects are cherished, he will succeed. Therefore, he is constantly seeking to deceive the followers of Christ with his fatal sophistry. Another word for that is fatal masterpiece with the intent to deceive his fatal sophistry that is impossible for them to overcome or that it is impossible for them to overcome. So there's a sin in your life. It's impossible. You're going to have that forever. You just got to, you know, live with it. And if he can dupe people on this issue over and over and over again to cherish their defects and say, well, you know, God's just going to have to change you when he comes because I can't. Essentially, we're saying God is not powerful enough to do a work in you. God's not powerful enough. Then are you saying that the devil is more powerful than God to do a work in you? And if that's what you're saying, then we are in fact following the wrong God because Satan is more powerful. This isn't small stuff. This is big stuff. But we say it all the time. It's impossible. I can't overcome that. Friends, give it to God. Say, Lord, I've tried. You know, I've tried and I have come to nothing. You're going to have to do it. And he'll say, praise the Lord. I'm so glad you asked. 
His divine power has given us everything that we need for godliness. The devil is seeking to undermine our experience to cause to feel that we cannot be overcomers and of ourselves, he is correct. But again, his divine power has given us everything. Another slide, Hebrews 4, verse 15. But we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I've heard so many people say, well, he was God, of course, you know, Can I read you this from Desire of Ages, page 24? He, Jesus, endured every trial to which we are subject, and he exercised in his own behalf no power that is not freely offered to us. Whoa! Jesus exercised no power that is not available to me and to you? Can this be true? As man, he met temptation and overcame in the strength given him from God. He got it from the same place that you and I can get it. The problem is we don't go looking for it. We don't go seeking after it. We don't spend time on our knees. We don't pray. If we had to bear anything which Jesus did not endure, then upon this point, Satan would represent the power of God as insufficient for us. So we had to endure it all. And I would say a thousand times above what you and I lick our wounds over. Continuing on, his life testifies that it is possible for us also to obey the law of God. As a son of man, he gave us an example of obedience. As a son of God, he gives us power to obey. So he wasn't some example that's so high and untouchable that is beyond us. I mean, he is, but the same power that was available to him is available to you and me. That's a humbling thought because he sure did it a whole lot better than I do. I make up excuses all day long. Well, I'm human. Well, I'm better than that guy over there. Do you want to be married to him, Elizabeth? Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You may not even have the want to. I don't want to give this up. I like it. I live for this thing. Bible tells me to give it up. Not happening. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Keep allowing the Holy Spirit to nudge you until eventually you say, okay, I've at least come to the point now that I recognize this is not good for me. But I still don't know how I can give it up. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Keep coming to church. You know what? I haven't done that thing all week. Praise the Lord. A few years later, I don't even think about that anymore. Praise the Lord. What if Paul had said, I'm saved by grace, but I cannot overcome my bad temper. I can't overcome my negative thoughts, my evil tendencies. What kind of witness would Paul have been? I don't think he would have been a witness for the power of the gospel, but rather a witness of a powerless gospel. God doesn't want to save us in our sin, but from our sin. I don't want to tell my son who's in the ant pile getting stung or in the bee nest or whatever it is. Don't worry. It won't kill you. You'll be fine. I want to save him from the bee's nest. He wants to give us victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Proverbs 28, 13. And he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So it brings us back to the jailer who in humility was asking, sirs, what must I do? I promise you it wasn't sirs when they came in. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. Now Christ is another word for anointed one or Messiah. Jesus, we know, is our deliverer, our savior from sin. We just read it in Matthew 1, verse 21. But Lord, is he the Lord of your life? Accept the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. You and your household. And then verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They had a Bible study. Let's look at some of these things. It's not that complex. It's actually quite simple. You know what every Bible study comes down to? Surrender to God. 
what they all come down to. Different issues, different topics, some different subject matter. Surrender to God. Well, where should I start? Wherever. It all ends at the same place. Surrender to God. I remember asking my dad one time, Dad, I feel like I keep preaching the same sermon about surrender. He says, well, that's the bottom line of, all, of it all, isn't it? Okay. So they get down, they have this Bible study. And then verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes off of Paul and Silas. And immediately he and his family were baptized. Praise the Lord. All because of a transformation of this insinister man, Saul of Tarsus, who was transformed by the power of the gospel. His life was changed at a core level. And now by God's grace alone, he's demonstrating a confident and contagious faith. And his witness impacts another secular mind for Christ and the gospel. So whether it's Saul of Tarsus or the keeper of the prison, the simple fact remains, if we humble ourselves before God, he longs to do a work in us for his glory, that we too may have a confident and by God's grace, contagious faith in Jesus Christ. The real question is one of surrender. Will you let him? How do you do it? It's quite simple. It's just union with Christ. When Christ abides in the heart, the whole nature is transformed. Christ's spirit, his love softens the heart, subdues the soul, and raises the thoughts and desires towards God and heaven. And you do that day after day after day after day, and you can't help but be changed. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But I want to do this. But I want to do that. Sorry, I is crucified with Christ. I no longer lives. Jesus lives in me. Second Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. How are you transformed? By beholding Christ. Well, I'm just not having any success. Well, then behold Christ more. Stop beholding your sin so much. Stop putting all your focus on those issues. Focus on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. If we humble ourselves before God, he longs to do a work in us for his glory. That our attitudes won't be wrapped up in circumstances, but rather we can have a confident and contagious faith in him. Dear Heavenly Father, We're so thankful that you are a gentle shepherd, that you have overcome sin for us to grant us pardon. But Lord, you also make available to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, power from on high to overcome, that we may live life and live it more abundantly for your honor and for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us in the challenging circumstances of life to keep our attitude and our minds fixed on you and to have a confident and contagious faith by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.